It's Friday, April 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We've known for some time that those with underlying health conditions are more at risk of getting more severe symptoms from COVID-19. But new data from the CDC shows that those with diabetes, lung disease, and heart disease face an increased chance of being hospitalized. The CDC found that of those people requiring admission to an ICU, 78% had at least one underlying health condition. Joel Achenbach, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, with the global economy coming to a halt, airline flights canceled, and people staying at home, the unintended consequence has been that air pollution is down. In a somewhat unwanted atmospheric experiment, we are seeing levels of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide go down. But these small gains may not last once things get back to normal. Ula Hrobach, contributor to Popular Science, joins us for how coronavirus has cut down air pollution. Finally, curious about what people are doing to pass the time as more states impose stay-at-home orders? Jigsaw puzzles are having a moment, but good luck trying to find one. Amazon has stopped accepting puzzle shipments, so try Target, Barnes & Noble, and your local mom-and-pop shop. Michael Phillips, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the jigsaw puzzle craze and why to watch out for secondary puzzle dealing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Are at elevated risk of being hospitalized if they get the disease. Now, I want to make clear, if you are in one of these categories, and I just know a lot of people who are, it doesn't mean that the virus is going to kill you. It just means that you're more likely to wind up hospitalized, more likely to wind up potentially needing to go into intensive care. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Oh, Thanks for having me. There's some new CDC data that's talking about coronavirus that shows that those with diabetes, heart or lung disease, and other chronic conditions are more at risk. And we've already known this, that people with underlying health conditions might be more susceptible to being hospitalized with this. But we're finding out a little bit more how these particular underlying health conditions put you more at risk. Joel, tell us a little bit about that. This is consistent with what we saw in China a month or so ago or six weeks ago, and then in Italy and now in the U.S., the simplest thing it tells you is this is the same virus everywhere on the planet. It's playing out the same way. It's also telling us that this new report focused just on people with underlying chronic diseases like renal disease, being immunosuppressed. And this is a lot of people. Keep in mind, when you talk about people with heart disease or lung disease, and lung disease could include emphysema, asthma even. Basically, we're talking about tens of millions of Americans are at elevated risk of being hospitalized if they get the disease. Now, I want to make clear, if you are in one of these categories, and I know a lot of people who are, it doesn't mean that the virus is going to kill you. It just means that you're more likely to wind up hospitalized, more likely to wind up potentially needing to go into intensive care. No one wants that. We already kind of knew this, but it just reinforces the point that, that those who are more vulnerable need to avoid getting infected, which means you stay at home. You have to treat uh, people you know who are vulnerable with special handling. Don't expose them to the virus. It's a real challenge and it's worrisome, but the social distancing should work. It's a very simple way to deal with the problem. Now, I don't know if this came out in the CDC data, but does any of it suggest that people, when they do pass away from this, are they passing away from 
complications of their underlying health conditions or is it the COVID-19 that's actually doing it? Because from my understanding is if it gets really bad, it's a respiratory thing. You know, most people kind of get these pneumonia-like symptoms. That's why they need to be put on uh, ventilators and whatnot. Uh, But is it the underlying conditions that is killing them if they get that bad? That is the question. I will tell you that the new CDC report that we reported on yesterday doesn't answer that question. Okay, just does. It's not that granular. This is a first initial snapshot. All it really tells you is that a high percentage of people who have an underlying condition, relatively high percentage, wind up in, in the hospital compared to people who don't. Okay, now. That doesn't mean that if you have an underlying condition, you're going to wind up in the hospital. Right. It just it shows that correlation. And two more subtle points here. It could be that, let's say I get COVID and I have like a heart disease. It could be that I will go into the hospital because the doctor says, oh, this is a person who has an underlying condition and we need to treat this person with special care. My COVID case may not be particularly bad. Okay. So we don't, we don't know that the COVID is driving people into the hospital as opposed to the underlying condition plus COVID just puts that person in a special category in the hospital says, you know, we, we want to check you in, right? That could be that. Secondly, the CDC report doesn't say that the severity of your underlying condition translates to a more serious outcome. I think that's common sense that it probably would, right? But they just couldn't crunch those numbers yet. They can't slice and dice the data that fine yet to say, yeah, if you have stage four of this or stage three of that, you're going to wind up with a commensurately worse case of COVID. So that's all kind of fuzzy. It tells you what you kind of already know. And then your question is the right one, which is if you die of this is it the COVID that's killing you or is your is it your previous condition? In a way, it kind of doesn't, I think it doesn't matter. You got a double whammy somehow, unfortunately. So for this study, the CDC analyzed more than 7,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases where health officials had written records about a pre-existing condition of any kind. And it did seem that diabetes, chronic lung disease, and cardiovascular disease were the top three at least. That's right, but those are very common illnesses, and they have a whole list of things they consider an underlying condition. Their one big conclusion is that if you have an underlying condition, you're far more likely to wind up either in the hospital or in the ICU, and you're more likely to have a, have a fatal outcome uh, you know, among the people who died among the 7,000 patients they looked at overwhelming numbers were people who had some underlying conditions. So that's consistent with what we we knew already. The reason we looked at 7,000 people is those are the people who had records taken where they had filled out a form, and we know if they did or did not have an underlying condition. Some people didn't, and the people who didn't have underlying condition, they were much less likely to be hospitalized. Joel Achenbach, science reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And so there have been some satellite observations of where they measured up to 70% decline in peak concentrations of NO2 and also some declines in carbon monoxide, which is another major respiratory pollutant. Joining us now is Ula Hrobach, contributor to Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Ula. Thanks for having me. 
So one of the unexpected side effects, I guess maybe people have seen it coming, but with the global economy kind of grinding down to a halt, all these flights canceled from all the airlines, people are staying home, they're not driving as much. I can just say anecdotally, I live in Los Angeles. The traffic out here is a fraction of what it used to be. And this whole time that we've been social distancing, staying at home, there have been some beautiful days out here, really clear blue skies. And global air pollution is down right now because of all the social distancing that people are practicing. But who knows how long this will last? A lot of these clear skies and, and everything will really depend on what we do after the crisis kind of ends. Ula, tell us a little bit more about this. In the past six weeks or so, numerous kind of satellite data has shown that we've seen big drops in several pollutants. There's been a lot of work done with nano 2 nitrogen dioxide, because that's something we see a really quick response time within the atmosphere. So there have been some studies showing big declines over China and over Italy and over other parts of major cities in Europe, as well as some information coming out now in major U.S. cities as well. So we're getting a lot more data. Obviously, the United States is a little behind in this because obviously it started in China and made its way through Europe. So a lot of the data that we're seeing right now is mainly from China and Europe. Tell us what we've seen in China specifically, because we know that they have a serious problem with air pollution there. And in the time that they shut down, they were able to see some pretty big gains. The virus really hit hard there after the Chinese New Year. And so there have been some satellite observations of where they measured up to 70% decline in peak concentrations of NO2 and also some declines in carbon monoxide, which is another major respiratory pollutant with levels going down 30 to 45% from peak levels during the same period last year. And that's particularly with the carbon monoxide and aerosols that's particularly visible over major cities, including Beijing, Wuhan, and Shanghai. And we've seen it everywhere. Obviously, you mentioned Italy, even in India on the first day of their lockdown, they had like their lowest nitrogen dioxide readings on record. And that was like the first day. So it's been pretty impressive on that front, at least. I know we had some data from New York. Carbon monoxide levels are down about 50 percent from the previous year. I haven't seen too many numbers for U.S. cities. So that is one stat that did come out. And that is mainly due to the decline in traffic as cars and trucks are the main source of carbon monoxide for that region. But we can assume that with the drop in traffic we've seen and across major U.S. cities that there are probably other sharp declines in air pollution. Now that we've kind of seen how clean it can get in just a short amount of time, what do the experts say? I mean, it's this is going through this pandemic and it is a crisis and obviously we hope everybody is healthy and all that. But going through this isn't really the cure-all. We've seen a bunch of climate studies to get the globe really clean again. It's going to take decades and decades of work. This doesn't happen over the course of a few weeks. So what do experts say how to capitalize on some of this? This is just a temporary thing, and it's caused by something that's overwhelmingly bad. So what scientists are describing this as is it's kind of like an unwanted experiment. We didn't want this to happen, but it is showing us the declines in pollution that are possible. And once we can kind of keep analyzing that data and seeing what's responsible for that decline, you know, breaking it down by different industries, by transportation and energy, we can see what happens when we do cut back on certain activities. And there are certain takeaways that we could lead to, such as the benefit produced by more people working remotely, if that's an option, or what happens when certain industries are cut back. And so 
moving forward, that's kind of what really matters because this is only going to be a very short temporary drop in emissions, including air pollution and CO2. But moving forward, what matters is kind of how we get the economy back on its feet and, you know, whether seeing this data will motivate people to consider in future measures like incorporating investments in clean energy and other such measures into stimulus package. Especially the working from home thing, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of companies across the country that are really figuring this out out of necessity. And I'm sure that a lot of people are going to want to try to stick with that because you know people don't always want to go into work. They want to stay home. But the big worry with all of this is the comeback. Once things kind of calm down, everybody's going to get back in their cars. The airlines are going to start flying again. So that's really a big worry that the pollution could come back and come back with a vengeance. As I think I noted in the article, you know, there are signs that China's pretty much coming back to normal in terms of pollution. And we'll see that everywhere as soon as some of the social distancing measures are reduced. And so that is definitely a worry. And if we don't really do anything with this information, then we'll likely kind of just be back on the same track in terms of pollution and carbon emissions. So really what's important is the lessons we take from this and the choices we make moving forward. And do we bail out polluters or the fossil fuel industry, or do we invest in an economy that promotes jobs and promotes progressive climate policies? Ula Robach, contributor to Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. It's not that they're not manufacturing them. They're running them full speed in Germany to try to produce these puzzles. But Amazon isn't taking puzzles at the moment. They've closed their warehouse doors to anything that's not deemed essential and inexplicably jigsaw puzzles are not apparently deemed essential. Joining us now is Michael Phillips, reporter at the Washington Bureau for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. We're constantly talking about coronavirus right now and how it's affecting our lives. Wanted to take a little moment to focus on what people are doing to pass the time besides you know, watching Netflix and Tiger King or, you know, Zoom chatting with different people. Uh, one of the interesting things that has popped up is jigsaw puzzles. People are looking for jigsaw puzzles to help pass that time. And they're looking for the more difficult ones, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 pieces. Michael, tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's really extraordinary. I mean, there was one day about a week ago, uh, the top 10 search terms that people put into Amazon.com, nine of them were hand sanitizer and Lysol wipes and that sort of thing. And only one was something else, which was adult puzzles. People want something that will keep their minds and hands busy while they're sitting at home day after day. Yeah. And as anybody that's ever worked a puzzle, a particularly hard one knows, they are very time consuming. And that's what people want right now. They want something that's going to take a long time to solve and figure out. So tell us a little bit more uh, how the manufacturers are dealing with this, because from what I'm reading here, it seems like they're having Christmas numbers right now at Easter time. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, Ravensburger, which is the world's largest jigsaw puzzle maker, it's a German company. They had a 370% increase in sales over two weeks. And after that, the sort of the supply line started to run dry. Not that they're not manufacturing them. They're running them full speed in Germany to try to produce these puzzles. But Amazon isn't taking puzzles at the moment. They've closed their warehouse doors to anything that's not deemed essential. And inexplicably, jigsaw puzzles are not apparently deemed essential. 
So some of the channels by which the companies get these things to really bored consumers are just closed. They can't get them there. Amazon, for their part, you know, they're just doing shipments of household staples, medical supplies, things like that. And where Ravensburger is finding themselves, you know, since they can't ship to Amazon, they're sending all of their stuff to Target and Barnes and Noble. They're not even selling stuff online themselves anymore in favor of pushing it out to these outlets. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and I talked to Barnes and Noble. They said, hey, we're getting things in and we sell them just as fast as we can. A lot of the Barnes and Noble stores are closed. You can get pick things up at curbside, but you can't go into a lot of the stores. I think about two thirds of their 600 and some odd stores are closed at the moment. So Bart, the guy, the CEO of Barnes and Noble talked to me and he said, people want more complicated puzzles and fatter books. How about the mom and pop shops? I, I know you spoke to Sullivan's Toys and Art Supply in D.C., what are they doing? Because they're doing deliveries, running things out to customers, cars. They're really trying to keep whatever business they have going. That's true. It's a, they're actually just a few a few blocks away from my house, which is I have, how I happen to know Sullivan. We ordered a puzzle the other day. and This is got into her car. She has a mask on and gloves. She rings the doorbell and hands me a jigsaw puzzle. So, yeah, they're these smaller stores. They, they can't keep the pipeline going either. They, so they don't get as many puzzles as they want. And then they can't get customers to come in the stores anymore because they're you know, not essential businesses. So they're delivering. They'll come out to the, you know, stick them in the car window like you're at an old drive-in restaurant or something. It's, it's an extraordinary change in the way that Americans are doing business. And it's funny, you noted in the piece too, uh, you know, kids' puzzles, they're, they're a little too easy. Obviously, nobody wants those. But for a time over the weekend at Sullivan's there, the last puzzle that they had in the store was a 631-piece monochrome gold rectangle from Ravensburger's Crypt series. So it's it looks pretty confusing. And that was the last one that they had in there because people had bought the other uh, colors already. I guess uh, they were in black and another yeah, color, they had. silver yeah. and black. So they only Amazing, had the gold version. My wife and I have a, have a puzzle which is a sort of shaded pinks and golds with no defining features. And we have tried this thing twice, done the whole frame, and we just give up. We, it's just it's just too hard. So the idea of doing an all black puzzle, you know, some people want that kind of challenge, and I'm not among those people. But yeah, the the Ravensburger <laughs> Crypt series, they call it. Those are they're selling out too. And okay, and the last thing I wanted to talk about this because uh, you know we've talked about buying them on Amazon, mom and pop shops, Target, all that. But there's other there's also secondary puzzle dealers, resellers. I, I know the, the Ravensburger people pointed out, and they said. You know, look at this. It's going on. You know, people are reselling at a, at a markup. I don't think you could be arrested for price gouging of jigsaw puzzles. But it's still, it's it's noteworthy that the demand is out there. And, you know, if there's demand out there, some people find a way to fill the market uh, and take advantage of it. I just have to shout some of them out real quick because Catch a Wave, it's a 1,000-piece puzzle. It has a seascape with a surfer, a sea turtle, and dolphins. That's twenty ninety nine on the website on the Ravensburger website. Some are selling it for $48.99 plus shipping and handling. Uh, This one was fun. Dad's Shed, a nostalgic look at Dad's Sheds. And that's $18.49 and people are selling that for $54.95. So yeah, so you got to watch out for what you're buying and all, but but still the, the demand still remains high for jigsaw puzzles. Michael Phillips, reporter at the Washington Bureau for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.